we're in, the, we're in the Easter season, and as Jason said, we're continuing a series on Easter and the resurrection. And I think that, you know, for me, it's easy just to take this season for granted because it becomes routine in our culture. But just see if you can pause that in your brain and just go back to that season. Picture yourself as a disciple. I mean, here's a guy that you've spent three years with. You've slept in all the same places. You've seen all the same people. You've listened to all the teaching. You've spent three years with this guy, and he's done things that have never been done before. He's said things that have never been said before, that flew in the face of religious leaders. And now, he's gone. I mean, he was crucified. For everything that you thought about this Messiah that was going to come, all this power that he was going to come in, he could have gotten off of the cross. But he didn't. He stayed on the cross and he died. I mean, think about the ramifications of that moment if you're a disciple. All the things you might have been thinking, all the things you might have been dreaming about. I mean, this is the guy that's supposed to deliver you from all the oppression. And this is the guy that uh, is supposed to be freeing you. If you put yourself in the shoes, or maybe the sandals, of the disciples back then, this is what you've been waiting for because he's seen, you've seen things that you've never seen before. But now, I mean, now what? He's gone. I mean, he's dead. And for you as a, as a disciple living back then, that's got some pretty big ramifications because if Jesus is dead, then Christianity is dead. And what does that mean for you as a disciple? What about all those claims that Jesus made? You know, Paul, the Apostle Paul, would write something very similar years later after all this went down. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, he wrote, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. See, without the resurrection, there is no Savior. You ever think about that for a second? If the resurrection didn't happen, there is no Savior. Without the resurrection, there is no salvation. There's no forgiveness of sin. There's no hope of resurrected life. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. And Jesus then is reduced to a good man. There is an element of this story. I was telling the, our, our service leaders before when we huddled, one of the things I love about doing a message and love about communicating is that there's something that happens in me that week as I'm preparing and as the weeks go ahead. And I, man, I've just really dug my week this week, just preparing for resurrection because there's an element of this story that honestly, I've just never seen it before. And I really want to share that with you. And it's how the disciples responded to the crucifixion. That's why I picked out that video. Um, if you've been around Christianity for a while, there's a person in the New Testament that gets a bit of a bad rap, I think, and I don't really agree with his nickname, but if I were to ask you, who is the most famous doubter in the New Testament, you would say, yes. Some of you said Thomas, which was very nice of you. Some of you said doubting Thomas. This is the guy's nickname. 2,000 years later, he is known as doubting Thomas because he gets this rap because here's a bit of a spoiler alert. Um, when Jesus does get resurrected, Thomas is the guy that says, well, I'm not going to believe it until I touch the wounds myself. Hence, doubting Thomas is born. If he would have known that was going to happen, he probably would have chosen his words a little bit better. 
But see, the thing that surprises me about this is it's not like, it's not like nobody knew about this event. It's not like the resurrection was a surprise to people. It's not like this happened and people were like, what? What's, I, didn't, I didn't get the, the Jesus memo. What, what, what's happening here? Jesus spoke about the resurrection a lot. And if it wasn't, if you take Jesus' uh, account out, there was so much that was foretold in history about the resurrection. But yet, in the middle of all of that, the thing that I love about this story, the thing that makes this story so real for me today, is that in the middle of that, in the middle of all of that stuff, the disciples doubted. The disciples doubted. Leslie and I were with a, a group of fantastic people earlier this week, and uh, we were having a great conversation. And the conversation turned to, you know, what do you do when you doubt your faith? What do you do, first of all, do you? And then second of all, what do you do? And, and man, it was a great conversation because it was like, of course. And I just, I volunteered. I said, you know what? Without getting into it, there was a situation about four weeks ago where I was sure that I heard God. And I was sure that God was speaking this, this, and this. And man, Tyler could not have been more wrong. I completely missed it. Completely missed every element of that. And I would be lying to you if I didn't say, what? Did, what? 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 What's happening? And in that moment, yeah, I was like, okay, something's going on. Something's happening. And that's what I love about this story today, is that you see the disciples, you see what they're going through, that in those times after crucifixion and before resurrection, we're in this awkward waiting time that we spoke about a few weeks ago. And the disciples, you see everything that they're processing. So what I want to do is I want to revisit some of those events today. And then I want to look at some biblical evidence for the resurrection because that's going to help us answer the question, why does this matter? Why does this matter? So if we started the week of the crucifixion, like JR said last week, this was a crazy fast week. I mean, you think about all the events that transpired back then. Jesus was arrested on Thursday, and by Friday night, he was dead and buried. That's quick. So what I'm going to do is I want to revisit some of these events, but to help us collaborate the story, I'm going to bounce between the Gospels because these were separate accounts, but they're going to collaborate one another's story. So we're going to start in Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Okay, let's stop right there. I need to catch up. If you've never heard this story, what happened was Jesus was crucified, and then he was taken down off the cross, and we're going to get to this in a second, but he was brought into this tomb, and there was a large stone that was pushed in front of this tomb to seal it, but then also for protection. So they knew about this, and so they were, going to, they were saying, who's going to roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone which was very large, had been rolled away. So this is not good, okay? This is not good, nor is it common. Um, the stone would have been huge uh, as a way of sealing the tomb. So if I were to think about this in today's terms, this is the equivalent of you um, coming home late um, and it's dark 
and you see your front door, and your front door is hanging from the hinges. It's not good. You know something is up. And so the ladies were saying, well, well, who did it? So then let's bounce over to Luke. So Luke, if you read the Gospel of Luke, man, Luke is this guy that he investigated everybody and everyone, and there is more detail in the Gospel of Luke. So let's bounce over to Luke. Luke chapter 4, verse 3 says, but when they entered, the ladies, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So not only was the stone rolled away, which was a feat of strength in itself, but they didn't find the body. There was no body. This is one of the most interesting parts of the whole Christian narrative to me. Nowhere in the Bible is there an account of Jesus' followers assuming that he had been resurrected. Let that sink in for a second. Nowhere in the Bible is there an account of somebody saying, Yes! He was resurrected! Praise God! He's not here! Yes! Couldn't find it. Couldn't find it. When Mary and the women looked into the tomb, they assumed that somebody stole the body. So they ran back into the city, and they wanted to find the disciples who were hiding. Mark. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were what? What's that word? Afraid. Go back to Luke. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven, the rest of the disciples, and all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they, their audience, did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. I don't know where where everybody in this room is on your journey with God. I'm not going to pretend to know that. But I know that if I were speaking for me, sometimes it's hard to bring the events of the Bible into today. You know what I mean? Because I'm reading this book and these events that transpired a long time ago. And it's hard for me. I wonder like, okay, what kind of lives did these guys lead? Drastically different than mine. And it's hard for me to sometimes picture my life and where is this relatable. And regardless of where you are in your journey with God today, whether you've been a Christ follower for 50 years or maybe you're not even a Christ follower, um, I think we can find some commonality in this story. Because as I've said, I've had moments in life where I, I doubted and I wondered God. And this is the same thing. Think about this. The closest people, In Jesus' life, the closest people he had on the earth, the one that he was spending all of his time with, there is nobody closer on the face of the earth. These people doubted the resurrection. Isn't that just, like, this week I was like, what? Really? I find encouragement in that. Because these are not perfect disciples. These are not perfect Christians. And I was like, yes, there is hope for me yet. I'm doing all right. On the morning that he was gone, nobody assumed resurrection. They assumed that he would stay dead. I heard um, one of my favorite speakers say this a while ago, and it just stuck with me, that nobody expected no body. Nobody expected no body. Everybody assumed that Jesus would do what everybody that had died before that would do, that he would stay dead. 
So when they go into the tomb and they see no body, this is a big deal. And see, you know, we have this conversation, I think, in Christianity about, well, what makes the Bible credible? And how is it not just an old document? How is it not fixed and all this? This is one of the ways that we know that the Bible is credible. Because think about this. If you're a disciple and you're writing this account, would you put all this stuff in that kind of like made you think, really? You doubted? Really? You, you put that in your story? This is one of those moments that make the story credible. The men and women that were closest to Jesus documented their doubt in multiple gospels. They documented their skepticism. So this morning, I want to I pause the story a little bit, and I want us again to consider all that the disciples have heard for the last three years and before that with history regarding the resurrection and everything that had been spoken in history about this. Um, I went on a bit of a journey this week just through the Bible because I, I wanted to know. I wanted to know for myself. I, I wanted to say, okay, I want to look at what Jesus said about the resurrection, but I wanted to look at events, almost like I'm building a case for the resurrection. And um, I want to show these events to you. And I spent way too long in PowerPoint. And so just, if you're going to nerd out in PowerPoint, this is the great service for you to be in. So um, one of the startling things is that the resurrection was prophesied in advance. Five years ahead of time, 10 years, 700 years ahead of time. The resurrection was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah. And he promised that Jesus would be born into a humble circumstance, to live a simple life, he'd die a brutal death, and then he'd rise to take our sin away. So I want to read this to you. I didn't put it on the screen. Isaiah 53. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. We're going to come back to that. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet... When his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees that all is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. Listen to this, verse 11. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. How do you do that without resurrection? I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. 700 years Before Jesus was on the earth, the prophet Isaiah said, Hey, listen, this event is going to happen. So not only did Isaiah predict it, but Jesus predicted it. He talked about this a lot. I put some of the verses up there. If we look in Matthew, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In Mark, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes be killed and after three days rise again. Also in Mark, these are all the same people he's communicating this to. So they went from there. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. This is a separate conversation. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they they did not understand the saying 
if we go into chapter 10, a different conversation. See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three, you're going to see a pattern. After three days, he will rise. Let me give you one more, because this is, you know, this is great. A different conversation in the book of John. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll rise it up. The Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. I hear a sigh when they say that. And you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body, because he's smarter. Isaiah predicted it 700 years before. Jesus predicted it a lot. There are more accounts that I didn't put up there. But then Jesus died. To prove he was dead, a spear was thrust through his side. In the book of John 19, verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it's finished. In verse 33, When they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Another prophetic fulfillment right there. But when one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. When they shoved that spear in him, that was to to prove he was dead. And he was dead. And so he was taken off of the cross. And I I did a little bit of research on this because I wanted to know about the, basically the, the death rituals at that time. And it's believed by scholars that he was probably wrapped in upwards of 100 pounds of linen along with all the spices. So if he was able to survive the crucifixion, he would have suffocated within all of the, um, all the cloth that he was wrapped in. And so after that, he was taken into this tomb for three days. So if he was able to survive the crucifixion and if he was able to survive the suffocating, there's no way he could have lived in that state for three days in the cold without food and water. Jesus actually died. And so we we saw this on Isaiah, but if we go back to Isaiah, Jesus was given an expensive tomb. Now think about this, because Isaiah, I love the detail in Isaiah, because he not only predicts the resurrection, but he throws these details in about Jesus will be buried in an expensive grave. Well, 700 years ago, they didn't know who this guy was. Okay, well, he's going to be buried. Okay, he's going to be doing well. No, he was poor. He was poor. And so Isaiah gives us this detail. How is he going to be buried in an expensive grave? And we see this transpire in Matthew 27. After he was crucified, we're going to look in chapter 27, verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate, and he asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he, Joseph, rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Isn't that cool? Like 700 years before that, he's going to be given an expensive grave. And now Joseph who has a fascinating story by himself, but Joseph has resources. And he says to Pilate, I want his body. I'm going to give him a proper burial. And Pilate says, done. Prophecy fulfilled. That's so cool. 
Jesus appeared physically after his death. I think some people might have this, well, you know, resurrection, maybe, you know, this weird. No, no. He was physically on the earth. Tyler, how do we know that? Well, we know that by the scripture. Because in Matthew chapter 28, verse 9, and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came and took a hold of his feet and worshiped him. He had a physical body because they were grabbing his feet. Then again in John, I didn't put that up there, but in John chapter 20, Mary came up to him and embraced him. And Jesus said, hey, 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 do not cling to me for I have not ascended to the Father. How can you cling to somebody if they're not physically there? He had a physical body. And then we get back to our boy Thomas, right? And it's that famous story that I was telling you about, John 20. Then Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side, physical body. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Because Jesus had a physical body that was critical in the life of Thomas. Thomas needed that. And I'm just like, God, you have such a propensity for details that I just absolutely love. Now, here's one. Jesus' body before the resurrection is the same body after his resurrection. It's the same body. He has the wounds. But then there's these little details in the New Testament that I love if you think about them that the disciples recognized him as the same person who had been crucified. If we see in Luke chapter 24, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave to them. And their eyes were open and they recognized him. They recognized him because it was the same body. They knew who this was. In John uh, chapter 21, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Why? Because they knew it was the Lord. His body was the same. He had the same wounds. Now, this is really, this is some really cool stuff here because um, you always want to look, if you're building a case, you always want to look for, um, how would we say this? I don't think Corey Swanson, Corey Swanson's an attorney, so he would, he would get on me about this. But if you can have people that are not on your case corroborate your story, that's just another point of evidence. And that's exactly what happened is that, um, you know what, let's, let's do this. I want to actually go back to, we're going to push pause on that because I first want to tell you about this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which was a letter to some churches, this actually happened after the resurrection. And the cool thing about this, Paul writes this, he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So 1 Corinthians was circulated right around AD, 30 to 36. What does that mean? That means that as Paul wrote that letter, the events that he was talking about, the people were still alive. So as he wrote that letter, people in the Corinthian church could go and find these people and say, hey, 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 I heard about this resurrection. Did you see it? And they would say, yes, I did. I am a separate eyewitness and I saw it. I love that. I love that. <laughs> so, it's funny because uh, Jesus' resurrection, 
his family worshipped him as God. Now, how many people have siblings? How many people have a little brother? How are you, what do you have to do to convince your brother that you are God? This is one of my favorite details in the scripture because it wasn't always like that. You'd think, okay, well, little Jesus was born and, you know, James, he was, oh, he's walking on the water again. No, 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 it didn't happen. It didn't happen that way. In John chapter 7, verse 5, we see what his brother thought of him. In John chapter 7, verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. Yeah, that's cute, Jesus. Yeah, keep, keep talking. His brothers didn't believe in him. But after the resurrection, different story. James concluded the end of his life that his brother was his Lord. And James was actually martyred for his beliefs because James wrote a similar letter. And in James chapter 1, verse 1, this is how he starts the letter. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that cool? I mean, you talk about the 12 and knowing Jesus, and then you talk about Peter, James, and John who knew him well, but then you talk about this whole other group called his family that literally watched this kid grow up into a man. And at the end of James' life, he wrote a letter and he says, here's who I am. I'm a servant of God and of my bro and of my brother, the Lord, Jesus Christ. I love that. And I got a little bit ahead of myself before because I was really excited about this point, that his death number one, but his resurrection was confirmed by his enemies. Whenever you can have your enemy confirm your story, checkmate. So Paul, remember Paul? You know, writer of two-thirds in the New Testament? Well, before Paul was Paul, he was Saul. And he was a persecutor of the church. This was a guy that had been raised in all the traditions. He knew the law, and he used it like a sword. He was persecuting the church. But then he has an encounter with Jesus that completely changed his life and changed his trajectory 180 degrees. And this is what Paul says. Initially, Jesus is enemy. This is what Paul says. Philippians chapter 3, verse 6. And he's describing himself here. And he says, As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I'm blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul was one of the church's staunchest enemies. And now he has an encounter with the living God, completely changes his life 180 degrees. And now he says, it's real. It's real. This is not a story. This is not a fable. This is not a, an allegory. This is real because my life is real. And he went on and he lived a heck of a life, spreading the message of Christ because of the, because of the crucifixion and because of Christianity. These nine mile markers are so important to give us evidence of the crucifixion apart from the story. So when we, push, when we push play on the story that we were looking at, if we go back in Luke, we see why this was so important because uh, Jesus said in Luke 24, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, 
Why? That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. It's like you can hear him saying, I told you about this when I was with you, that everything must be fulfilled. So if we go on, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ must, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. I love that moment because where are they in that moment? They're in Jerusalem. So it's just this cool picture of one of your best friends in life saying, okay, this is why I told you, because everything must be fulfilled, and we're starting here. This movement that's going to propagate throughout the earth for the next infinite time, it's going to start right here in Jerusalem right now. That's why I'm telling you, we're starting it here. Who's with me? And I was just like, yes. And then he says something so important, and this is really important for us today. He gives them six words. You are witnesses of these things. You saw it all. You could not have been any closer. You were the witnesses of these things. Think about that for a second. Think about that. You know, it's hard for us to imagine this being a Sunday afternoon in beautiful Helena, Montana, but they could not have been any closer. They witnessed the event that changed the world and that would continue to change the world. They witnessed an event that would birth an entire movement of people and change history. Because let's go back to the beginning. After the crucifixion, there were no believers. There's not a single record in the Bible of somebody holding out hope or assuming that he was going to be resurrected. Think about everything that's at stake in that moment. The stories, the parables, the teaching. Everything is on the line. It was all in jeopardy. If Jesus was going to be crucified and die and not come back, then he is not who he claimed he was. Something is wrong. The resurrection changed all of it. It was the event that validated all of it. These people were all eyewitnesses. See, that's why we can believe the resurrection. Not just because the Bible tells us so. Not just because of that, but because eyewitnesses told us so. And their story was backed up by independent sources. Their story was prophesied 700 years in advance. Their stories all lined up. And then you saw the events take place. The resurrection then gives us permission to accept Jesus' interpretation of his own life. It confirms everything that Jesus taught. And that has huge ramifications for us today. 2,000 years later, the resurrection validates what Jesus said about the crucifixion. In that video, talking about the perfect spotless lamb and that Jesus would be that lamb because God demanded blood for a substitution for our sin. And Jesus was to be that substitution. So he was crucified. If the resurrection didn't happen, all that goes away. But as soon as that resurrection happened, Jesus proved that forgiveness is available. 
And Jesus proved that he could beat death. And he could beat the power of sin when he rose from the dead. You guys, if you've never heard that before, this would be a great time to jump up and say, thank you, Lord. Because that had never happened before on the history of the earth. The resurrection confirms then today for us, for you, that forgiveness is available. The resurrection confirms, and somebody please hear this, that you are absolutely loved by God. Regardless of your history, regardless of what you think you've done that disqualifies you from God, the resurrection proves there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Somebody say nothing. Nothing Nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Whatever is in your past is a part of your past and it's it's going to become a part of your testimony for the future. That is what the resurrection did. It confirmed and punctuated the crucifixion. I am so excited about this season because next week, as Jason said, we're going to have a baptism and that's going to be great because that's a, that's a public declaration of saying, I, I want to do what my Lord did. I want to be baptized. I want to have a, a public statement of going in the water and coming out a new creation. And then after that, we're going to celebrate the week following. We're going to celebrate what we've talked about today. And we've done this intentionally because we want to build your faith. Yes, Easter morning is great because, you know, ham and eggs and... You're missing it. There's so much more. There's so much more. That guy in the video, is he coming back? I don't know. He did. Which means that God is accessible for you. And what I, I think what I love most about that story is that forgiveness is available, but it, it enables us to then forgive. As we go in our circles this week and as we go in our relationships this week, It enables us. The resurrection enables us to forgive and to love. Because if if you're waiting for somebody to be a representation of Christ in your circles, I want to show you a reflective piece of glass that has that person's face in it. It's a mirror. You're the representation of Christ in your circles. And the resurrection then gives you permission this week and permission next year and permission in the next 20 years to be forgiveness. And to be love. Somebody say amen. Amen. Is that not great news? Father God, we, we are so thankful this morning. We are so thankful this morning, Father, for this season of the calendar year where all of culture looks to this story. They might not believe yet, but God, the focus is on you these coming weeks, Father. And our focus is on you, Father. And God, I just pray that, Father, for those here that don't know you, Lord, God, I pray that today would be the day that they ask questions to the person they were with, or they ask questions to our prayer team and saying, what what do I have to do, Lord? God, you made it really clear. All you have to do is believe and confess. It doesn't get any easier than that, Father. God, I just pray for us as a group of people that we would be forgiveness and we would be love this week to our circles, to our relationships, Father. And we look so forward to celebrating this season in the coming weeks. God, we thank you for what you've done on the cross. And we thank you, God, that you beat the cross. And you came out of the grave. Amen.